five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone. I'm in London today uh, with Saeed Taji Faruqi, who is a uh, filmmaker as well as a senior TED fellow. How are you doing today? Uh, very good. Very good. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm alive. I'm in London, and uh, we're surviving the Blurb Roadshow, which is a miracle in itself. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, yes. Uh, we've got two more events left. So you and I met at the TED Fellows Retreat in mm-hmm. Monterey. Yeah. Um, just to be very clear to the audience, I am not a TED Fellow. <laughs> <laughs> My test score is probably not in the range of the TED Fellows test score. Um, but what does it mean to be a senior TED Fellow, not just a TED Fellow, but a senior mm-hmm. TED Fellow? And what's it like to be part of the TED family? Yeah, it's a good question. For me, the the whole idea, I had known about TED before someone told me about the, the Fellows Program, but just about their their talks. And basically, they started to realize when they became really popular that there was a very specific type of audience they were getting, which was like majority white male billionaires, and they wanted <laughs> they wanted a little more diversity. Okay. So they created a fellows program to support, the brief is basically supporting people that would never otherwise be part of the TED family okay. or community. And I was very lucky because I, fa- uh, I was at a cousin's wedding and his friend worked for TED. Okay. And I was just talking about my documentary films and she said, you should apply for this thing. So I really got in the ground level. I was in the second year. Okay. And I look at the people that are getting fellowships now. There's no way I would have been able to compete. <laughs> so for me, it was very, you know, it was really early days, but good I was timing. lucky. Yeah, good timing. Um, and what it means is, on the most practical level, the basic fellowship is, in my year, it's changed a few times. Um, the basic fellowship was one year, and you go to both, uh, both of the big conferences there. Okay. But you also get a lot of uh, workshops in those two conferences. Um, you get support with your career. You, you get a personal mentor. Oh, nice. And then you're just part of the family for and, until death. So it's not, this fellowship never runs out. Oh, that's I fantastic. I mean, you, the perks run out, of course. Yeah, the free yeah. conferences. Yeah. Free coffee. Free coffee that. runs out. <laughs> and then they bill you for it at the end of it. No, no. Um, but, you know, you're part of the family for the rest of your life. So the first year... I was terrified. It was very foreign for me. It's a very, it's very American, okay. and, you know, yeah. for, for, for good or bad. Uh, but in the sense that everyone is very positive, everyone wants to support your work, everyone's very curious about your work. And that's not, I mean, I, I've been living in Britain most of my life. That's completely the opposite of how people here <laughs> are. And um, I actually freaked out and I considered leaving at one point because it was just too much for me. Too much, too much positivity? It's partly that. I know it sounds weird, but I mean, I'm actually quite, uh, in many ways, a pessimistic guy. And so it's like a bit a bit difficult for me to be around that for too long. Um, but more than that, it was I was so uncomfortable with my own work that I, that I couldn't talk to people I didn't know very well about it. Do you think the subject matter of your films, I want to, I want to get to your background in a minute, but mm. do you think the subject matter of your films is part of the pessimism feeling that you have of watching yeah. we're going to talk a lot more about about the films one in particular but um mm-hmm. you know it's heavy duty subject matter and yeah 
you think that influences you or is it just being in the British culture for your whole life? No, I think it is. Uh, it's the content of the films. I mean, it's the, con- it's the sort of things I'm interested in. Uh, but they are, sometimes they don't really fit any kind of equation, which, which is the difficulty there. Because the, I think, especially in the early days of the fellowship, it's gotten a lot better now, but the TED community was um, sometimes, the, you know, it was much more used to binaries. Okay. And uh, particularly the background of a lot of people was tech and biotech. Sure. So very often their philosophy is there's there's a problem how do we fix it let's find the solution it's fixed you know um my work doesn't doesn't fit that equation right and so i found people trying to make it fit and that made me uncomfortable and then i felt like i had to make it fit to be part of the thing mm-hmm. and so you know I, but of course if you're talking about something like war you know there's no Hey, what can I do to help you? Yeah, you know, it doesn't, no doesn't work fix. that way, right? Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, anyway, the TED community was not art and film heavy. And, and we, the artists and filmmakers who are fellows, have really been pushing for a lot more people from that background. Mm-hmm. So it's much better now. But it was quite a struggle in the early days, you know, in the sense that even the mentors they had were not used to that world. Sure. Uh, and everything, you know, the finances are different in that world, the structure, the, the career advancement is very different. So let's go back a little bit to where I don't know anything about you. I don't know where you come from. I don't mm-hmm. know your background. I, I, I met the full-size version of you <laughs> yeah. a, a year ago, and you were you know, you already into your life. Where do you come from? Where, what's your background? Yeah, it's, a, it's complicated. I, I'm originally Palestinian, half Palestinian, half Egyptian. Okay. Uh, my dad's Palestinian. My mom's Egyptian. I was born in England. As a, it was a very strategic decision. My parents uh, and my sister all had passports from the Arab world. And they needed a European passport because oh, okay. they just couldn't travel and live and work anywhere else. So um, they came here to have me. Okay. And then immediately went back to the Middle East. Okay. Are they still there? Uh, they still. My dad now is retired, so he lives in between Spain and the UK. That Depen- sounds pretty. Depending nice. on where the weather is, <laughs> is better. Yeah. Uh, my mother died about five years ago, but she was here. She lived here for for the end of her life. Okay. Um, yeah, so I had a British passport, but I was in uh, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. Okay. And then at about six, uh, I came back to the UK. Okay. Then at 16, I went back to Bahrain, finished school. Uh, and then I went to university in the US. And then oh, you I, did? Where, yeah, where in the US? Tufts in oh, yeah. Boston. Another good school. Another school that I would never be able to get into. So I'm never, oh, yeah, never going to get into Tufts or TED. So <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's other more exciting institutions to be a part of. Um, and then I moved back to uh, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco for for a few wow. years working. You've gotten around. Yeah, and that that's when I really started making films. Let's go back to sixteen years old. Mm. What country when you're sixteen? Where are you living? Sixteen is when I moved from London to uh, back to Bahrain. And what did, what did you envision your life being at that point? Did you have a vision of being a filmmaker, or did you have a vision of being a firefighter or whatever? What was oh it? no, I mean I've been obsessed with film since I was about eight years old. Okay. I mean there was never if you asked my friends, you know, that went to school with me when I was ten, they would say filmmaker. There's no doubt. I mean I was so in love with cinema. Why? And everything. The truth, okay, this will get into a bit of a psychoanalytical session. Perfect. But, but I'll That's give it what to I'm you here straight. For. Yeah. So my, um, my mother was, very, uh, was a very violent alcoholic. She was, okay. she was uh, sadly quite mentally ill. 
with depression, uh, several other things. And, and, I mean, it sounds cliche, but cinema was, was my escape. Okay. You know, cinema was in that world of, of uh, violence and uncertainty and self-defense and all this. It was a, it was a kind of another magical world where any where anything could happen, and it was so. But it's so vivid. I mean, I have these incredibly uh, specific memories of a specific part in a film. You know, when something was happening, and that was my gateway to another world. And so, when I think about my love of cinema, it's those moments that sort of created this. Do you, desire. Do you remember one of those first moments, a particular film? Oh yeah, um, I mean, there's two that are, that will never leave me. Um, the earliest is probably Papillon. Have you seen? Oh the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I had a really traumatic experience because uh, it, it's a long film, right? And it had to go over two VHS tapes. Okay. And my dad had taped it off television, and at one point I lost the second VHS. And I was horrified because I couldn't see. I'd seen it already, but the ending to me, uh, so the, the image that always sticks in my mind is when Steve McQueen jumps. Sorry to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen Papillon, <laughs> by the way. But he decides he's going to jump with the, the, whatever, the bags that are going to keep him afloat. Right. And Dustin Hoffman says, I'm not going. And it was inconceivable to me why he wouldn't go. Yeah. And, but, but I had to keep watching it to try and understand. Um, and I think now a lot of my films are very uncertain, right? There's never an easy answer. Right. And I really think I can trace it back to that moment when I thought, there's a good reason for this. I just don't get it yet, right? But I was, whatever, eight, ten years old, yeah, or 12, yeah. whatever. I mean, that's a heavy movie for a ten-year-old kid. It is. It's very yeah. intense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was that question that I feel like I'm always trying to answer is there's always an easy way mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of people don't take it and I never understand why I want to understand why well it's funny because the last couple of days I've been spending a lot of my time talking to people about books which is what I do every day pretty much and there's a big difference uh, between an easy book and a good book mm -hmm. and it's easy to make an easy book um, but yeah. the things, the stakes really change. And, and I think significant things happen when you start to make things that are difficult, that are, you may, in fact, in tracing it back to this, you may not even know why you're making it or sure. why you're making it the way it is, but there's something sort of in you, in your DNA, your experience that pushes you forward to make that. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, ev I'm assuming everyone who watches the film and doesn't know the story thinks, okay, this is where they're going to leave. And then suddenly the, it takes a twist. And, but weirdly enough, it's not a tragedy. It's like Dustin Hoffman doesn't go, but he's happy with that decision. Mm -hmm. And I really couldn't figure it out. And I also, from very early on, I conflated cinema. I'm not going to say with the real world, but I always invested reality into those films. So I didn't think of it as like, why did the screenwriter decide to make his character do that? Or why did the author decide? I thought of it as why does this guy not jump off? Sure. And that, you know, that's always infused the way I see cinema now. Good films, right? right? You don't think why did they write it like that? You think why is why is this guy doing this in the film with this woman, this character? Right. Um, that's because you you're emotionally invested. When you see a good yeah. film, 
it's uh, it's immediate. You're you're invested, and then yeah. suddenly you're in someone else's hands. You're in the yeah. hands of the the author and the filmmaker and mm-hmm. and the characters. Yeah. If the acting is good, I mean, good script, good acting is um is really. I mean, those are the films that never get made and don't make money. But that's mm. you know, unless you we, we, the blockbusters. I was looking at an ad the other day, and it was like another. Uh, not action hero, but comic book movie that had been made. There's like four or five, six of these things. Right. And I just see the trailer and I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. But those things yeah. make, make insane. All right, so let's transition yeah. here. You made a movie called Tell Spring Not to Come this year. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read a couple of things, some selected uh, press about this. You won oh, the thanks. Burn and Alley 2015 Amnesty International Human Rights Film Award. Mm-hmm. You won the uh, Documenta Madrid Grand Jury Prize. The MISAFF, which I'm not familiar with, but you won Best Film. Yeah, it's um, the Canadian were... um, Mosaic Film Festival. It's about okay. Asian, South Asian films. Nominated for the Tim Hetherington Award. Mm. We're going to talk a little bit about, more about him in a minute. That was a real honor. Yeah. Grand Jury Prize at Full Frame Documentary Festival. Nominee. Uh, nominee, yeah. yep. Nominated and also for the Grand Prize at the Basel uh, Basel Builds Rouch 2015. Mm-hmm. Amongst others, there's a lot of other press about this. And one of the one of the quotes that I love about it was, um, it's basically you made a film that rivals any war documentary that's ever been that's ever been made. Yeah, and that's a pretty heavy heavy statement. So the film it's is a film funny. about the Afghan army fighting the Taliban after the departure of the American troops. Yeah, NATO in general. NATO I mean, in all, general. NATO in the U.S. Yeah. So before we even get to the film itself or the the content of the film. There's a question that's always intrigued me about this, and having other friends who work in conflict zones, I've always tried to ask them the same questions. Mm-hmm. How do you get from London to the front lines in Afghanistan, logistically? I mean, I, I, oh. I, how is that even possible? Um, I mean, every conflict is different. Uh, I think one of the reasons why so many foreign journalists identify the Balkan War so so personally, or it's been really kind of seminal in a lot of their careers, mm-hmm. um, is because it was so easy to get to the front line. So you could just take a taxi, and then you would be there. It's, it was in the middle of cities. And, yeah, that's you know. remarkable. Yeah. That's a remarkable fact. Yeah, and that, that was very, you know, it made it easier. That's why I think a lot of people's careers started there, because it was so accessible. And, and it was in Europe. And, sure. Um, but anyway, in Afghanistan, you know, on the one hand, there is no real front line. So it's a bit of a trick question. But for us, we knew, I mean, we had already embed permission with a specific unit of the army. Okay. So we took a regular commercial flight to Kabul, and then you have to take a military flight from Kabul down to the, the main base in Helmand, Camp okay. Bastion. Yep. And that's pretty tricky, actually, because at first, when we first started the film, the Americans were still in charge of all that transportation. Okay. So we had to take an American transport plane, which meant we needed to be embedded with the American troops as well, even though all we needed was, you know, and we kept trying to say that to them without insulting them. You know, they would <laughs> Don't give, need you. <laughs> right. I mean, they were trying, you know, they were basically going through the paperwork of an entire embed and like permission to film people. And, and we were like, we're not, uh, literally all we want you as is a taxi, no offense. Yeah. But you're the only ones that fly there. And we got on that first, you know, it's a C-130, the giant sure. thing. Yeah. And um, and we landed and we walked off. And, and it was actually full of Afghan troops. So the Americans were transporting the Afghans at that point. And someone said to us, well, who the hell are you guys? What are you doing here? And we, we showed them the paperwork, but it's all from the Afghan Ministry of Defense. 
oh, we're here, we're doing a film, we're journalists. And the guy said, I've never heard of you. You're getting right back on this plane and going back to Kabul. Oh. And we, you know, we'd been waiting several days and this was the first shoot. And so I, me and Mike, I sort of said to him, I'm not going back. We've got to figure out a way out of this. <laughs> and to his credit, you know, we just blagged our way through. And we had to do that several times. Um, sometimes he would sort of pull rank a bit with them because uh, he'd been in the British military. Okay. Sometimes this is your... This is your... The, uh, the co-director. Co-director, okay. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the paperwork was enough to impress them because we had, we had a signed paper from a four-star general, Afghan four-star general. Okay. Some, some Americans couldn't care less about that. Sure. For some of them, you know, one of them literally said to us, I'm out of here in two weeks. I'm not going to contradict a four-star general. So you guys do what you want. But if anyone asks you, <laughs> I didn't see this. Okay. Right? That yeah. kind of thing. Um, they also didn't want to let us leave, by the way, at the end of that trip. They wanted to keep you in Hellman. Well, we still didn't have permission to fly as far as the Americans oh, were concerned. Okay. But yeah. then, you know, so it was almost like, we really want to get out now, please. And, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a proper Argo moment where, like, we're running, the plane's about to take off, you know, the last passenger's in. Yeah. And we're running after it. And I told Mike, or he told me, just don't look back, just keep going. And so these two Americans are still arguing amongst themselves <laughs> whether we have permission to fly or not. And we just had to get on the plane because otherwise we would have been stuck in hell. You'd still be there. We'd still be there. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so sorry, you land in Camp Bastion. Camp Bastion is under the American jurisdiction at that point. Then they have to transfer you to the Afghans in Camp Shorabak, which is right next door. Okay. That can also be tricky because they don't communicate very well. And then you just take a convoy from Camp Bastion to Garesh, which is where we were based. Um, it's really only a 90-minute drive, but uh, you need to go in a military convoy, and that, that's also subject to... IEDs and attacks and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. But, it, you know, so the whole schedule is very unpredictable. That's the hard part. So that flight from, from Kabul to Helmand, yeah. what, what's it like to get on that flight? What's going through your head when you're on that, on that flight, knowing where you're going to end up? I mean, I always hesitate to talk about how difficult it was for us because it's whatever we went through is so much easier than what the Did Afghans we, go through. Sure, sure. But with respect to that anyway... Um, I found it very, it was very depressing for me. It's not, you know, it's not an environment that I like being in. Um, also, military life is just really intolerable to me. Well, because what you described with the paperwork and the logistics, the, yeah. that fog of war that just frustrates everyone involved to the 10th degree, the yeah. locals, the fighters, the troops, the hierarchy, everybody's got bureaucracy and problems, and it seems to magnify mm -hmm. the problems. And we're talking about a conflict that's been going on for 10 plus years. Yeah. And it's still, like you said, that the Afghan base and the American base don't communicate very well. Yeah. And that, that fact alone is just staggering to think about that. Mm. To be so close and to be that close for, for that amount of time and there's still communication difficulties. I think it kind of sums up a lot of the situation in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, you know, that to me was one of the biggest problems. In, in, you know, obviously, I think the entire strategy of the war... The entire concept of going to war in Afghanistan in the first place was wrong. But anyway, aside from that, because <laughs> that's a bigger issue, there was a, a huge amount of distrust between the Americans and the Afghans. And I can understand there were, you know, there were insider attacks. It's a reality. Sure. But if you 
are going to meet your counterpart in the Afghan army because your mission is to empower them and that was always the exit strategy of America and NATO and you show up in full body armor with a weapon with a, a guy on each side of you also in full body armor with a weapon and your Afghan counterpart is just kind of chilling out in his fatigues and wants to shake your hand and say hello uh, I don't think you're helping the situation mm. so if the if we if we agree that insider attacks are based on some kind of animosity, distrust, hatred, I think you just amplify that when every time you see that person or that, that institution, you're saying, I don't trust you. I think you were trying to kill me. Yeah. Or you even say, I'm willing to kill you because that's how I look. So, I mean, that's a f kind of physical illustration, but that kind of distrust, I think, permeated the whole system. Now, you could have made films about anything, mm. and you chose to make a film about war in Afghanistan. Afghanistan obviously has a long history of war going mm. way back. They've never truly been defeated, I don't think, in the history of the Afghan people. Yeah. We, know, we, we know all too well what's gone on there for the last 10 or 15 years. We know the level of violence. We know the IED story and the drone strikes. Um, you, you've chosen a very, very unforgiving subject matter. Mm. I mean, I watched the trailer again this morning, and I had, like, quail egg-sized goosebumps. Mm. Just even as the trailer ends and you hear the sound of automatic rifle fire and shelling and things yeah. like that, it's an, it's an unbelievably unforgiving topic. I mean, I'm, you're, I'm watching the bullets coming in in the firefight. Why is it that you choose to make films about that? When you could make you could make films about the Hawaiian Tropic, you know, calendar shoot for whoever. I think I will. <laughs> I mean, is every that the time. next film? Did, yeah. I just, did I just spoil the next announcement yeah. of the next film? Spoiler alert! But it's to go into a major war zone mm. is a serious, serious oper it's, uh, operation. Why do that? I, I I don't want to make films about war, but I want to make films about the major issues. The, the generation-defining issues. Um, and unfortunately, they just happen to be war most of the time. Uh, I mean, also, I'm an Arab. The Arab world is important to me. Um, I speak the language. I can function there. So, you know, and again, it just so happens that now one of the overriding features of the Arab world, unfortunately, is, is conflict. Yeah. So it's, it's partly that, is that how do you, you know, I want to address the major issues, but from a different perspective. And, and so... My hope is this this film and similar films somehow contribute to the conversation about war. But um, there is also, I'm, you know, I'm not a j war junkie. I'm not someone that is excited by violence. In fact, I'm repulsed by it. But that's also why I'm interested in understanding it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's also directly related to the fact that I grew up with so much violence, you know, the subject of so much violence. And I need to understand why, how it happens. Um, so in a way, I do that to analyze the, the, the manifestation of violence. Mm -hmm. um, and the hope is also that in those films, other people can see it and, and start to understand how violence erupts in a situation like that. Um, and the guys in the Afghan army, tell, tell us a little bit about who they are. What kind of people are these guys that were mechanics on one day and mm. they're recruited into the Afghan army the next day? Is the, is the training, is it, are they trained well? Do they f have any kind of positive feelings about 
like success and holding off the Taliban? Mm. There's a huge range. I mean, the, you know, there's there are I don't know exactly how many, but ten or so major ethnic groups in Afghanistan. Yep. Um, so and and the army does a pretty good job of actually recruiting across all of those. And one of the you know, this you find this historically in a lot of nations anyway. But the army is a sort of nationalist project as well in Afghanistan. So one of the things they want to do is get a lot of ethnicities to work together. Um, and in fact, that works pretty well to give them credit, I think. So it's a it's a very diverse group of people. But like almost any army in the world, most of the recruits, I would say, are from pretty poor backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're not mechanics who are recruited because if they were mechanics, they'd have a job. Okay. They're recruited because they have no other option. A lot of these guys ah, have no, they, there is no job. Okay. So it's even worse than being in a low-paid job. Um, but now, you know, the, the salary of a soldier is one of the best, let's say, entry-level jobs you can get in Afghanistan. So it's a good, secure job for a lot of these guys. Uh, How did they feel about you, someone who didn't have to be there, who was there? Yeah, they, well, they recognized Mike because he'd served as their liaison officer. Okay. And that was very weird because when he first showed up, they didn't understand that you know, his military role was over, now he was a journalist. <laughs> so there was a whole kind of uh, experience of trying to explain to them. And every time we went on patrol, you know, they would say, where's, where's your weapon? And he'd have to explain, no, no, I don't, I'm not carrying one anymore. I'm, now, I'm making a film now. And this wow. is the other director. That's pretty so interesting. That was odd. That was odd. Um, and what language are you conversing in most of the time when you're in the field? Dari. So Dari. everyone, okay. yeah, Mike is fluent Dari speaker. Okay. He speaks, his Pashto is also Pashtu, good, yeah. but in fact, most of the people, pretty much everyone in the army speaks Dari, even if it's their second language. Okay. So even, even the, the Pashto guys in the army will also almost always speak Dari. I, I could understand generally the conversation when I first showed up because it's not that far off from Arabic. Um, and then I studied it over the years. So now I, I can have, you know, my comprehension is good enough to sort of decide if I want to keep filming a conversation or not. And, and I can speak very minimally. Um, with me, I think they, as soon as I introduced myself as Palestinian, a lot of them said, oh, so you're in the same situation as we are. Uh -huh. um, and that really affected how he told the story because from you know from the perspective of someone here or in the US reading the news you just read about your country's army going in and fighting a war but from the perspective of a lot of Afghans they are under occupation right they're under the occupation of a foreign military and so they said oh so are you and that for me was the first glimpse of this sort of real subtleties in this film that were suddenly going to complicate what I thought of as a very simple narrative now, the film falls under a category, let's call it a war, war documentary. Um, in the past few years, we've seen other films like Restrepo, Korangal, which are films, also war films, documentaries about Afghanistan. And what I'm curious about is you oftentimes hear of war fatigue, you know, of people of the public just saying, yeah, we know it, we, yeah, we got it, we got it, we know what's going on there, even though they may or may not actually have any idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And so um, <clears throat> Restrepo did well. I think it was nominated for some things that really put war documentaries, Afghanistan, on the, on the map. But how yeah, has... It went to the Oscars. It was nominated yeah, for an Oscar. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, and I should know that because I'm living in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I'm sort of immune to the, to the Hollywood thing. Yeah. 
Um, but how has the film, I know that you've won prizes, but overall is your feeling, has it been received the way that you wanted it to? Or is there a frustration that maybe the, the critics and the, and the film festivals have liked it, but mm-hmm. does it trickle down to the general public in saying, you know, this really impacted me? Uh, yeah, but, but that's because people have been getting in touch with me, people who've seen it, um, have gotten in touch with me and told me personal stories. I don't think, you know, numerically it's making a big dent. There aren't thousands of people going to see it in cinemas. Um, but we knew that making it, it's, you know, it's a war film, but it's quite an obscure one in the sense that it's very slow in a lot of parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually not much war in it at all. You know, there are two sequences that are probably 15 minutes total mm-hmm. of the 82-minute running time. At one point, we considered not having any war in it at all because we wanted to be, we wanted to be a bit contrary, and we also thought practically, you know, people have seen people fighting on screen so often that right. we can't add anything new to it. We wanted, whenever we edited a scene, if we could say, "I've seen that before in Restrepo or Armadillo or uh, To Hell and Back Again," you know, any of these right. kind of really good recent uh, Afghan documentaries we would cut it. So you're left with everything that people have never seen before. Um, but that's a little confusing because sometimes people want to see what they're familiar with, right? I mean, a commercial yeah. film, really, sure. if we were just thinking of audiences, it would be a different film. I mean, I think you don't need much with the war because even in the trailer, what you see in the trailer, again, it's like I had goosebumps looking at that, mm-hmm. realizing that, I mean, I, I don't know if it was you filming or Mike filming, but you can hear the breathing of the camera operator mm. and you know that like the, what your body must be going through when that's right. going down, you just it's need a, a, a taste and a reminder. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying to yeah. see that and think that you have to maintain composure, mm-hmm. which is um, another question that I have is how do you be when you're in a situation like that, even if it's not a firefight, even if you're, you're there, how do you, at the essence of what you're doing is you're trying to be creative yeah. to tell the most sort of magnificent story that you can tell. But how do you do that in those conditions? It's hard enough if you're going to shoot fashion on the streets of London yeah. to do that. How do you immerse yourself in that situation and stay creative? The, you know, I think there's two, there are two answers. One is that when you're faced with, with, um, things blowing up around you or this kind of threat of violence. Uh, th- I think people react in one of two ways. Some people, uh, everything accelerates, you know, their metabolism, their heart rate, their brain function. And that sort of sets you into panic mode. Um, that's not helpful, unless you're just trying to run away. I mean, it's helpful to keep you alive, but it's not helpful to work under those circumstances. The other is, is the people like me. Th- everything gets much slower. I get very calm, you know. I mean, inappropriately calm. You say inappropriately? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but for me, you know, I would rather take two seconds to think of my next move than try and act on instinct and make the wrong decision. Um, but I think generally what you find people who, who go to a situation like that and continue to go is this kind of category B, people who are still able to slow things down. So part of it is is just a biological response. Um, Were you always that way, or is that something you've developed over time? Well, that's the second answer, is that I think growing up with so much violence means ah. that when you, when you are confronted with it, you don't get the same immediate response. Okay. So, you know, um, 
for most people, the immediate reaction to violence is, is really unhelpful in terms of focusing on filming and blah, blah, blah. But if you become attenuated to it, it's a lot easier to still, you know, know that something is going on, but, but look at the screen and stay focused and keep the person in frame even while you're running for your life. Speaking of framing, what, how was the movie made technically? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, throwing I was... this, I'm throwing this in for my wife. <laughs> she works for Canon, runs a tech center. I got to throw it in or I'm okay. going to never hear the end of it. Do you want me to make a, a plug for a particular product? Uh, whatever product you happen to use. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's we, fair. Okay. We used... Uh, well, actually, we used two, so I'll plug both. Anyway, we started with um, the Sony F3. Uh-oh. Now which... I'm in trouble. <laughs> keep, keep going. <laughs> because... And I'll tell you why. Because A, I was very used to it. I had just shot my previous film with it. Okay. Um, and we were shooting with, with fixed Nikon lenses. Um, it just looks beautiful. They're old, really nice sure. glass. Yeah. Um, not cinema. I mean, there's stills lenses, but really high quality stills right. lenses. Uh, and also the F3 is built like a tank. You know, it's literally a cube or a rectangle, but it's very solid. And the thing when you start, I mean, you probably know from doing your, some of your work. Yeah. Um, very often the way someone designs a camera does not work when you're running for your life, throwing it around, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, the F3 is great because it's like very low profile. There's not much to catch on, but it wasn't really flexible enough. Uh, okay. it's quite, the chip is quite old now at this point, even though it still looks good, but we wanted a higher bit rate. Um, and we wanted a little more flexibility in terms of exposure. So it doesn't have a great latitude anymore. So we switched to the Canon C300. There we go. Which is what, <laughs> that's what you want to there do. There we go. Um, and that was partly because of a good friend of mine who had uh, who was shooting on the C three hundred also in Afghanistan. Okay. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And and I could see why. You know, I think in many ways it was really good for what we wanted. Um, there are some things that I f still find disappointing about it, but uh, but it was good enough for that that situation. And then we started using, obviously, Canon, you know, L-series lenses as much as we could. Right. Although our main lens, this is getting really geeky. I don't know how much geeky do you want. We're, we're just going to go a teeny bit more, and then I'm going to pull you back. <laughs> okay. But, so, because I'm, I'm, I'm the least geeky person in the world. Oh, okay. But I'm actually curious about it in this one situation because of the scenarios that you're in. Yeah. Because you're two guys working, mm -hmm. no sound guy, you're doing your own sound. Yeah. Okay, so you got a super small crew. I'm I'm actually really curious based because of, of the fact that the conditions that you're under. Right. I mean, me as a still photographer, if I went into that scenario, I would take my Leica M4 and two lenses and that's it. That's it, yeah. There's no meter, there's no battery, it's brass, it's 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 bulletproof. Yeah. And but as a filmmaker, uh, it's logistically, I mean even doing sound on these interviews, I've had to learn all these other things and, mm. and listening to the trailer, watching the trailer this morning, I'm like, how I don't even know how it works in the field. To do films. Well, we Mike did when we were in on the base. Mike was doing sound. Okay. Um, and I, I'm very particular about sound. I think it's uh -oh. almost more important than <laughs> than image on a, especially on a documentary. Okay, except uh, for this interview. But you aside know, from this, interview, <laughs> I can't hear it, so I'm assuming it's great. It's but, you know, sounds all right. <laughs> uh, and and the reason is, especially in a documentary, people will tolerate bad picture more than they'll tolerate bad sound. And how do you record sound? So we did it through a mixer hard drive recorder. Okay. Um, 
Audio net. I can't remember the make. Sorry. And is that? <laughs> it's good anyway. And so when you're in the field and you're filming, and all of this stuff is going on, mm. sound is front and center in your in your brain in terms of this sound has to be perfect. Yeah. I mean, in the field, we didn't bring the boom. So Mike had a boom pole running into a mixer okay. when we were on the bass. Okay. Um, we didn't bring it out on the field because it's just it's too, too cumbersome. Yeah. And, it's a, and it's a target. You know, people will see this big thing and right. they'll shoot at it. So you don't want that. <laughs> um, but we used a, a stereo top mic, really good quality, on the camera. And then um, I just had to get as close as possible to get the sound. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the challenge. Yeah. But it's, you know, it is extremely important to get good sound because that's where the information comes in. The visual is going to give you the, f the feeling and the atmosphere. But if you're talking about a documentary where you need some kind of narrative, the, all that information comes through the audio. And if that's distracting, you're going to lose, you totally lose the audience. What was the biggest technical challenge you had making the film? Was there anything? Was it weather? Was it dust? Was it uh, sound? Mm. Broken lenses? We did break a lens. We broke a lens, a mortar hit the lens, but it sounds really dramatic, but it was actually in someone's hand and they were loading it, and then they smashed our lens just by <laughs> swinging around. But I like to tell people that the lens what? got broken by a mortar shell. Yeah, that's um, a little disconcerting. <laughs> Uh, no, the biggest challenge, I would say, was just batteries when we were in the field. Because there's no source of electricity. Uh, you, do you have to use solar to recharge? No, it's not actually... I mean, you need to be sitting still for hours for solar energy to, to power a battery, because it takes right. a lot of power. Yeah. Um, and you're never sitting around for long enough. So we just packed, you know, whatever, 12 batteries. Okay. And we had to ration it. So then your choices of what to film become much more important because, Interesting. you know, from day one, you know, we were never out on patrol for that long, but even two days, you know, you need a lot of batteries. So speaking of a patrol, what was the typical duration of a patrol? Uh, we, let's see. I mean, we did a few that were one or two days, maybe one day to a checkpoint overnight in the checkpoint and back. Okay. Uh, the the first sort of battle scene in the film is a, a quite a big operation. I wouldn't call it a patrol. It was an operation in Yachshal, and that was three days long. But we only stayed two days because we had to get back. We had to fly out. Okay. Um, so, but even two days was difficult to to have enough battery life for that for those two days. Well, and then food and water and trying to find a place to sleep and all that stuff. Yeah, but those, you don't have to make any of those choices, right? I mean... You're the, with the guys. Yeah, the army, you do whatever they tell you. Okay. That's why, by the way, when I was saying army life is intolerable for me, it's because you have absolutely zero choices. You have no autonomy at all. And that's really uncomfortable for me. Like, to have someone tell you when you wake up and go to sleep and eat every day... Yeah. That's not my thing, man. I can't handle that. <laughs> I, I haven't had an actual office job, you know, since the very first job I ever had, 2000. That was it. I was there for a year and a half. I've never had a boss. You're not cut out for that. Since then. No, not at all. Yeah. So to be, you know, 37 and a guy who's 25 is telling me what time to go to sleep. <laughs> I, don't, I don't react well to it. Yeah. No, yeah. that seems a bit strange. Yeah. So for you, when you went into this, obviously your goal is to make a great film. Yeah. To make a memorable film. What are the ingredients required, in your opinion, to make something that's great? 
And and how often do great films? I mean, great. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about taking that word lightly. I'm talking about great films. What do they? What makes a great film? And how often does something like that happen? Right. I'm glad you so you kind of said as a throwaway comment. Obviously, your goal is to make a great film, but it's not that obvious in the in the documentary world. That's not always people's goal, especially a documentary that's about something pretty heavy. Most of the time, I would say they filmmakers identify some kind of campaign mm-hmm. as the goal. So it's like. I want people to know how they can reduce energy and reduce the burden on the environment. Or I want people to know how they can lobby their politicians sure. to outlaw female genital mutilation, whatever it is. Um, th- that's never my goal. And, I, and, and because I think that people will be more affected by a great film and a great story than they will a message. Yeah, I agree. And if they're affected by a message, all it's going to do is make them aware of that message. It won't necessarily change the behavior. But I want to do, you know, the way my friend who I mentioned who who was using the C300, he describes his films as humanist propaganda. And he and I and he said it sort of flippantly, but I said it's a good, it's a really good term, because especially in a war film, you're also combating years and years of negative propaganda right. as in pro-war propaganda mm-hmm. so my role is to say what's the other side of the story and it's propaganda in the sense that yes my biggest concern is the the ordinary lives of ordinary humans it's not the politics it's not the campaign you know i don't a lot of people have made films about afghanistan and they're about the politicians and those are important stories but I can't think personally of anything more boring than interviewing a politician about war. No, it would be truly horrific because you're yeah. never going to get an answer anyway. I mean, something like The Fog of War, you know, that's a phenomenal film. Yeah. But there's probably five people in the world that can do an entire interview and make it a really good film. Uh, I want to know what happens to the little guy at the end. So, um, so it has to be a good story. Uh, what makes it, I think, um, is commitment. For me, that's the, that's the biggest factor that determines whether it's a great film or just an okay film. Uh, I think the industry is not designed to sustain long, long productions in documentaries. Nothing. Either is um, the still industry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the same yeah. as you know, being a journalist. If you, if you say, I'm doing this project over eight months... No paper is going to fund it. You got to fund it yourself. Somehow. Even eight days, you Even probably eight couldn't, days. you probably couldn't get funding. Yeah, yeah. no, it's crazy. Um, and then the, also the filmmakers themselves are not necessarily, you know, the people talk to me like, oh man, I have a really long production shoot for this film. It's six weeks. You know, how am I going? I'm, I'm kind of thinking, like, we shot for a year, and that's pretty slow. My friend, who was living in Afghanistan, was there for three years. Now he's going to probably take about a year and a half to edit the film. And he makes great films. You know, that's the difference. Well, that's, it goes back to the easy versus the great. Exactly. And I think everything about our culture screams for easy. Mm-hmm. It screams for convenience. It screams for short attention. Yeah. I think the people who make the work that will last, I, th- I think ultimately what you made is a time capsule. You, you made a virus mm-hmm. that's a time capsule that is potentially not even going to be appreciated now to the extent that it should be. Mm-hmm. But as it ages, it gets more and more and more powerful because it's a testament, a reflection of what actually went down in this one particular place. 
I think it's incredibly difficult for people doing documentary work today yeah. to, to, to have the attention that it needs in real time. Yeah. And I think with, with speed comes a lack of mystery. Mm -hmm. Everyone is sharing everything and everything is quick, 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 quick. It doesn't lend itself towards making anything great. Sure. And then you start to wonder, do people even want great? Do they even know what great is? Mm -hmm. And I think you have to block all of it out and you have to make the film that you want to make. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's limitations and not everyone, you know, also the idea of commitment and patience is how long are you willing to work without getting paid? Mm -hmm. You know, how long are you willing to hustle to make, to find the budget for that film? How long are you willing to wait for more money to come in? So when I say patience, it's not just in the creative process, but it's the whole thing. You know, people get really nervous when you pitch a film at a film festival in January and it's not done, you know, by December of that year. People sort of go, oh, I'm, I'm so slow. I should have released my film by now. Mm -hmm. The industry is going to forget about me. But there's a few people who sort of go, you know what, I'm going to, I'll be underground a little for the next two or three years, and then you'll see what I'm working on. But you'll realize why it took me that long, I hope. What was the timeline from conception of the idea of the film to, to we are done, we wrapped? What was the timeline? We, I got the first email from Mike in March 2013. Okay. He went on a recce, oh no, we went out to film in October 2013. Wait, am I getting the years right? 2013? 2000? Yes, sorry. October 2013. Yeah. And then we filmed over the course of a year to October 2014. Okay. Uh, five trips. Wow. Between three to five weeks each trip. And then we edited from October 2014 until the premiere February 2015 at Berlin Alley. Wow. That, Not straight. I mean, yeah. we actually only edited for 12 weeks, which is a o little only too fast. Only for 12 weeks. I've never done anything that's for short. 12 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for a feature documentary, that's, that's pretty fast. What, what's the misconception of filmmaking? That people see somebody like you, you're a documentary filmmaker, I did a war in Afghanistan. What's the, is there mm. a, a reoccurring misconception of your life that you keep running into? You make tons of money... You live, you know, no. you drive an exotic car. I mean, there, because I often find that when people say, oh, what do you, when I used to be a photographer and people yeah. say, what do you do? Oh, you're a photographer. Oh, I'm so jealous. And I think, I don't think you have any idea what it actually means right. to be a photographer. Yeah. Like I just shot a wedding cake, you know, like that's not what I got up when I was a kid and, <laughs> and envisioned wanting to do. And I okay. think, I think that the realities of being, first of all, working in the creative industry, the realities are different from what people think yeah. because they look at it and they think, it's exotic, it's interesting, it's great, you get to do whatever you want. But there's a flip side of that, where right. it, it isn't that way. The hours are incredible. Mm -hmm. it's, there's, the funding is almost impossible to get. There's not a lot of attention for the work, etc. Is there any one thing that jumps out that you just kind of go, wow, people don't have, really don't understand what, what I'm doing? Yeah, I mean, for me, the thing I see coming up a lot is, because I work in conflict zones, is this assumption that I'm sort of a, a war junkie, or, you know, adrenaline junkie. Yeah. Um, and I think people also assume a certain type of person, which is like quite, you know, overwhelmingly male, sort of macho, aggressive, tough. Yeah. Um, I'm the opposite, but that's why my films are, are, are not like the average war film, right? I mean, Tell Spring is much more about the friendship between two guys uh, and the affection between them 
than it is about the fighting parts. Mm -hmm. And I don't relish the fighting parts. For me, it was like, how can we get this bit of the film over with as fast as possible? But without betraying how horrific it really is. We right. didn't want to ignore it. Because, I mean, that's why we ended up putting those scenes in. So uh, I think it's surprising for people that I am, you know, typically quite calm and quiet and I work in a much more subtle way than like the big exploding things. That's interesting. And that's why I asked you how you felt when you got on the chopper to go yeah. from Kabul and you said you were felt depressed. Yeah. And I think that that's a very telling thing. Uh, I was at a party in LA a couple of years ago and there was a war photographer there, not a, not a motion guy, a still guy. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of off by himself at the party and he looked kind of uncomfortable and someone asked him what he did, and his face just lit up, and he said, you know, I'm a war photographer, and, he, and, he, and it started this sort of, this, I don't know, this braggadocio mm. kind of like, it, he basically was the life of the party, and it looked like, and, and I kind of looked at him, and it, and it felt like he had been waiting for someone to ask so that he could sort of get that off his chest, and yeah. then he became this other persona. And I thought, it's got to be really difficult to live underneath that because it felt so artificial. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But, and, and that's why I was very curious about that um, because, again, I think there is a misconception of that, of why people would go to war when they don't have to. Yeah. But I think your history, specifically dating back to your childhood, it, you know, it actually makes, it makes sense. It's interesting mm. that, you've, that you've gone that route. Uh, this is a really yeah. broad and slippery question, but mm. how do you, what's the future of Afghanistan? And by future, oh. I mean... What's the next 10 years? What's the next, not even 50 years down the road, but five years, 10 years? The, it depend, I mean, I'm not an analyst, so this is all a very amateur uh, response. But That's it, what I like the most, yeah. amateurs. Um, it depends very much on what happens to the Afghan government. Uh, I mean, right now, the biggest problem is that the government itself might collapse, not, that, not even the war. The war is sort of the second... I mean, obviously, without a government, you can't fight a war, but... You know, this power-sharing agreement has, has pretty much been a failure. Um, generally, people's distrust of the government, the last poll I read was between 60 to 70% don't think the government is doing a good job. So it's pretty serious. I mean, and, and it, could, it could collapse. The choices the government makes are going to determine what happens to the conflict because until now they've been fighting America's war. And America's war is very linear, and it's about you and your enemy. Right. Um, they haven't, for some reason, realized that it's a guerrilla war. It's not a war for territory. Okay. But they fought it like a war for territory for 15 years. And it hasn't worked because the Taliban, or let's say the insurgency in general, because it's a lot of different groups, is fighting a very different war to what the Afghan army is fighting. And they're much better at that kind of war because they are a guerrilla army. Sure. So if the MOD and the Afghan government continues to fight a traditional war, uh, this could go on for decades, you know, at this level, where the insurgents take over a little more, and then there's a push and the Afghan army takes over a little more. But the end result is sustained violence for the population, which is a horrible way to live. Mm -hmm. um, if they look at a m slightly more radical solution of... Uh, a real counterinsurgency, which typically is is eighty percent intelligence and twenty percent use of force, mm -hmm. and even that use of force should be the police rather than the military. This is, I mean, st sort of standard uh, counterinsurgency policy, but they're not using it. 
And then you absorb the least radical elements of the Taliban into the political process. Uh, that could make a difference, I think. And, I mean, this isn't my theory, obviously. I'm sort of summarizing other people's <laughs> ideas. But, um, but the way it's going now is designed to just be uh, never-ending. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a it's perpetual, perpetual war. Yeah. So I'm going to flip back to the, to the film side of this. Mm. What's the last great film that you saw? Doesn't doesn't have to be documentary, fiction, whatever. Last great film that's stuck in your head. Oh man, uh, there's one I saw again. I just saw Apocalypse Now. Uh, the director's cut. The direc- uh, No, it wasn't the director's cut. Ah. No, it was the. Um, but it was the anniversary edition that had been remastered and yeah. re-sound mixed, which sounded amazing. Yeah. Um, one of the best lines ever. I wanted a mission, and for my sins, they gave me one. <laughs> they gave me one. Yeah. It's a, I'll tell you why it's a great film. I think because it's so unexpected. You know, it was unexpected at the time for mm-hmm. American society. Um, it was unexpected for, for Coppola to make it because it was very different from his first film. And how he made it. Yeah. You know, rewriting every night and right. Harvey Keitel getting fired and yeah. Sheen having a heart attack. And, yeah. Yeah craziness um and for me the best part so the film was followed by a q a with walter murch you know who's this uh, master uh and he said someone asked him why do you think it's so can i swear on this podcast yeah okay. of course why is it so fucked up the film you know and why did the sort of making of it also get fucked up not just the story right and he had a theory they had asked the military to cooperate you know as a lot of hollywood films do right uh, basically, so you can borrow their hardware. And the military said no at that point. So they did it on their own. And what happened, was they were filming in the Philippines. And word got out that this renegade filmmaker was making a Vietnam film in the Philippines. And Walter Murch says that a lot of American GIs who had sort of gone and disappeared started flocking towards the set. And they became the unofficial advisors. Advisors. There you so go. So they would say, oh, you think it happens like that? Let me tell you what really happens. You show up in the middle of a trench. Everyone's on LSD. You ask, who's the CEO? And he says, ain't you? <laughs> so that's what really happens. Wow. And I think that's why the story becomes so much more powerful and surprising. And it's actually, believe it or not, it's a reference for Tell Spring, because we wanted that same idea. It's like, you think you know what's going to happen, or you think you understand war because of the kind of really, really simplified news story. Right, right. But this is what's going on under that surface. I remember when my father went to see it. Mm-hmm. I, was too, I was too young. They wouldn't let me wouldn't yeah. let me see. I mean, I was probably in elementary school, and um, they wouldn't let me see Jaws either, for that matter, oh, which, was right. a, which was a good move on their part. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I remember he just came home, and he was irate. Yeah. He was like, it, it, it's just a bullshit film, and there's no way that it could have been like that. And oh, Because really? I think he had been, he was very conservative. Okay. I think he was much more prone to think, like, well, this is what the military's telling us. That's probably the way things are. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading about David Halberstam of the New York Times being in Vietnam and seeing troop transports coming in mm-hmm. with American troops and, and him contacting the New York Times office and New York Times saying, why are you lying to us? Yeah, like, no, there's, there's, no, no, American there's no American troops there. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that's a film. Uh, a friend of mine who's very into music, he always says that a good film is like a good song. You can listen to it over and over again. Mm-hmm. I've seen Apocalypse Now many times. My yeah. brother bought it for me for, for holidays a few years ago, DVD. Oh, yeah. 
And, um, and I agree. That's a, that's a fantastic, fantastic film. Yeah. It's just different. And there's so many great characters and, and visual and sound. And I mean, people quote apocalypse now all the time, right. all the time. And that's also a question of commitment. Cause you, you know, there's certain things that you look at and you think in someone else's hands, you could see how it could have been a completely different film. You oh know. yeah, I mean Coppola is a unique individual. Yeah, and the, the and the stars at those times, at that time in their lives, were in unique situations. Mm. They were vulnerable in a way that they that stars are really not vulnerable like that anymore. Right. The scene in particular with Sheen, where he punches the mirror mm-hmm. and his hand is bleeding, and Coppola is right outside of the frame, just pushing and pushing and pushing. Yeah. You know, Avedon did that with his still portraits, mm-hmm. and people would say, "Well, how did you? You know, God, how did he get people to do that?" Yeah. The truth is, he pushed them beyond where they were comfortable being yeah. to get that out of them, and then the moment they cracked was the moment he made the photograph. Sure. And that's not necessarily something you want to think about him as a photographer and say, well, maybe that's maybe not the nicest thing in the world to do, mm-hmm. but he made those images are, are, are a testament. I mean, they're some of the best portraits that have ever been made. But I think that's also the skill, you know, of, of being a filmmaker that wants to do things a little more radical is knowing how far to push it and knowing who you can push and who you can't. Yeah. There's some, you know, especially in docs because they're real people. There are some people in that I've worked, you know, that I've collaborated with in films and I push them really far because I know that they're comfortable doing that and they understand, okay, something else is going to come out of this. There are others that are obviously very vulnerable and I'm not going to push them very far. So the other night you kind of, you kind of teased me with something. And, uh, and, and it could have been, I don't know, it could have been the fact that we were at a blurb event. Uh-huh. But you said you were thinking of potentially making a book about sort of the behind the scenes of, of the movie. Yeah. If you have all this content. Have you thought any, thought any more of that? And why would you do a book, uh, a book about this? Uh, the f- the first reason is really practical because Mike has, uh, you know, a couple of years of really interesting interactions with the Afghan army, um, but a lot of them we have to anonymize. So so in writing it's a lot easier. You can tell the anecdote without telling who it is. Um, but we also have you know hundreds maybe thousands of still images that Mike took when we were out there. And so many, you know, we have a lot of scenes that didn't make the film, but those scenes tell their own stories that are, that are again, really surprising aspects of the war. Um, and what I really wanted is not, you know, it's sort of a scrapbook. Right. Um, and it would look like the notebooks that we kept while we were making the film. Uh, so it's got stuff on it, and then, you, you know, every once in a while there's a leaflet from the elections, and, and that becomes part of it. And then some photographs, and that becomes part of it. At one point, I was sitting outside the Ministry of Defense, you know, for hours while Mike was doing the paperwork inside. And I just started, um, I do these kind of one-line sketches of people's faces without looking at the paper for fun. But It's like a nice way of... What are they? They're called like contour drawing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love those. They're great. And it's also, it's just a nice way of passing the time and sort of opening up your mind a bit more creatively. Um, but it's also a great way of interacting with people. So everyone else waiting in line saw me and we started talking about these drawings and I gave some of them to them and it was just a fun way of interacting with people. But, you know, those would be in the book. Um, it's, for me, it's about bringing the reality of the war also just off the, the screen so that you can have something that's a little more personal to take around with you. Okay. 
I hope you do it. I would love to, yeah. And I'm going to relentlessly badger you. You are okay, a senior great. TED fellow. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Get to it and start I making should. some books. Yeah. Two things. Where do people find you mm-hmm. online? How do people How do people see your work? How do they get in communication with you? Yeah. we The website for the my production company, and it's got all of our film details, is touristwithatypewriter.com. Okay. Uh, I'm at Saeed Taji on Twitter. S-A-E-E-D-T-A-J-I. Okay. And through touristwithatypewriter.com, you can get to buy or see the film in different ways. So it depends on which country you're in. It's on Netflix. Okay. okay. Uh, that's U.S. and some other parts of the world, but not all of them. Okay. Uh, it's on iTunes, and that's, I think, the the opposite, that it's not U.S. Yeah. Until yeah. a bit later on. Okay. Uh, and it's on something called SEMA On Demand. SEMA is the Social Impact Media Awards. Okay. Uh, which is a great network of filmmakers that I've been working with for three or four years. Um, and it's still occasionally in cinemas and festivals. And you can see all that. The easiest way is follow at Tellspring okay. uh, on Twitter. And then we always post about where the film is available. And you can buy the DVD on Amazon. Okay, last question. Mm-hmm. What is the best case scenario for you? Right now, at this point in your life, the direction you're going, mm-hmm. what's, where do you, if you could dream any dream of your, your future self, yeah. where would you be? Where, where are you headed now? I, I just want it to be a little easier to make the films that I want to make. And, uh, you know, it's been a huge effort... So I've been making films now for, well, documentaries since 2004, but actually film films since about 98. So, but I, you know, I deliberately at the beginning said, how do I get a trajectory where I can do what I want to do without getting stuck in something commercial that I may not be interested in? Mm-hmm. Now I'm just about at the point where I can have an interesting idea and see it through, you know, but it's still a monumental struggle. So the ideal is that with each film, that becomes a little easier. Either because sources of funding are changing and the industry is changing. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot to push that as well. I'm very active in terms of reforming the industry. Or I just have a better reputation. You know, people say, okay, this is weird, uh, but he's done it before and it worked out. So let him do it again. A track record. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all of that. I could talk to you all day. I Mm -hmm. think this is absolutely fascinating. I've been fascinated with Afghanistan since I uh, just got right after high school. I started to really sort of wonder what was actually happening there. I graduated Mm -hmm. high school in 87, Mm -hmm. and uh, those subsequent years were pretty transitory there with major people moving out and other people moving in and then to uh i found a book in college by uh, ed grazda who's a black Mm -hmm. and white still photographer from new york who did a book called afghan journal oh okay i went to new york i interviewed him and started looking at this work so i've been fascinated by your film ever since i met you and uh it's just i wish you the best with everything and i really appreciate you taking the time to Thank come you. here to the to the my wonderful hotel room mm-hmm. and uh, and set up an interview and you're the only person who brought their own mic. I told you which, I'm into audio, which I totally appreciate <laughs> because it would have been a pain to go back and forth. Yeah, this was the first interview that I was going to go back and forth. Okay, I'm never going to go back and forth. Good, I'm bringing my other mics from now on. I don't okay. care how heavy they are. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, I love your work and I hope that the uh, the followers of this. Uh, 
of this site really take the time to look at this film because it's fantastic. Great. I hope so too. Thank you for also inviting me to interview. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll talk again soon, hopefully. Sure. Okay. Bye. Bye.